Good morning. It's good to be here today. Um, I've already talked to you and told you who I was, so I'm not going to do that again. Um, but I am going to talk about the good news. You need this good news, and I need this good news, and we need it today. Uh, this is not good news. It starts when your life is over, right? It, is, it starts when you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. The good news is this is for all of life. It's not for just salvation. It's not just for the sweet by and by, but it is for daily living, for marriage, for singleness, for raising children, for walking through a broken world with a real hope. That's why it's important. Real life change is possible. If, if these, and the thing is in the baptism stories, I'm inside all of that. I get to hear all of those. You just get the, the 30 second or the two minute clip. I get to watch people as they are changed by Jesus. And get to see and let them tell me that. And so there's this evidence of an alive gospel. It's not just a a good teaching or or good advice or or about being a good person, right? It's about an honest to good, goodness, transformation from death to life. And so we talk about the upside down kingdom, about Jesus turning our hearts and our lives upside down, that we are new creations. That's not just a saying, that's a reality. And I love to hear those stories and I hope you do too. We started our, our new creation series three weeks ago, um, if you were here. And we started that with celebrating the victory that Jesus has, that he won over Satan at the battle at the cross. In Genesis 3, we see Satan came onto the scene. And in Genesis, uh, in Revelation 20, he's defeated and he goes off the scene, never to be seen again, one, done for once and for all. And, and last week, we saw in Genesis 2, the very first marriage between Adam and Eve. And we saw that, that that our individual marriages are just little displays of the cosmic marriage of Jesus and his church, which is written down for us in Revelation 21. And then we see again in creation today in Genesis 1 and Revelation 22. There's creation and then there's the new creation. And so it's the end of the story. Our text today is the Bible. It's from Genesis 3, Revelation 20, Genesis 2, Revelation 21, Genesis 1, Revelation 22 to say, here is the story. Here's the importance. It's about Christ as the apex of all history. His death, burial, and resurrection is what history is for. And history is the unfolding of God's story being chronicled for us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Is that a Chris, is that, is that an Easter text? Yes, it is. You're going to see why I hope that we can connect the dots and see the glory of the Bible as it kind of chronicles God's story. Yes, God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. And we follow in Genesis 1 how he created by speaking, right, by speaking through his word, light and dark, sky and sea, land and plants, sun and moon, fish and birds, and then animals. And he saw that it was good. And then he made humans. And humans, we are told, are made in his image, which is totally different than anything else that he created. And he had a special relationship with them because they were in his likeness. We were made for God. God then, we, we read, he plants a garden, is the Bible's, uh, the way the Bible says it. He plants a garden, and in that garden, he put a river of life to flow to it and bring water to it. And in the garden also, there was a tree that was called the tree of life. And so we've got a garden, and we've got a a, a river of life, and we've got a tree of life. And in this garden, the Garden of Eden, or the very first temple, it was complete. Why do you say it's a temple? Because it's where the humans met with God. 
That's what temples are. That's where we meet God, where God and man come together. And Genesis says that Adam and Eve, that they walked with God in the cool of the day. And they worshiped God through living by working and, and working and keeping the garden. There was no separation from God at all. They were called to spread God's glory from their overflow of joy of walking with him by being fruitful and multiply and to rule well over the land. That's what they were told. That was their one thing. Be fruitful and multiply. And you and I were created for God's glory as well. And to the degree that our lives have him in the center under his rule and reign, to that degree do we experience the deep joy of following him. But sin entered the picture in the garden. If you remember, in Genesis 3, we talked about it. A sin or a distrust of God or a disobedience of his law. And it broke the relationship between humans and God and it brought a curse which sin and death followed. Genesis 3.22 tells us this. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man, talking about male and female, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil because they ate of the tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever, dot, dot, dot. And what this is telling us is that God, presumably out of mercy, put the humans outside of the garden once they had achieved this sinful fallen state out of disobedience so that they would not eat of the tree of life and live forever in that state. What is that state? Separated from God. Away from holiness. Unable to enter his presence. And so in his mercy, he puts them outside the garden so that they would not stay like that forever. And so evidently from that, we can also see that the tree of life provides eternal life. And so God put an angel with a flaming sword to guard the garden and human mankind, humankind was separated from God looking forward to the promised day where the promised one would crush the serpent, rescue his people from their sin and restore his kingdom to its rightful place. And we read in the Old Testament that God dwelled in a, in, a, in a way, again, with his people Israel to a degree. Remember the tabernacle and, and Moses in the wilderness, and they built the tabernacle. And the children of Israel, as they wandered in the wilderness, God resided in the holy of holies. And then they, they moved into a kingdom and became a nation state with Israel, with Saul and, and David and Solomon as kings. And then they had a temple built by Solomon. He constructed it and in it was a, another, a holy of holies. It was more permanent. It was where God dwelled among and amidst his people. This gave his people hope that maybe the kingdom would be restored, not just the way it was now, but that they would walk maybe in the cool of the day with God like Adam and Eve did. Maybe this was the progress of how that was going to happen. And maybe Leviticus 26, verse 12, as promised, would happen. Where God says, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I will walk among you. There's that language again of walking with him in the cool of the day, just like back in the, in the garden. But we know, if you've read in the Old Testament, that his people continued to rebel and they continued to cheat on him with going, by going after other gods, generation after generation. And their constant disobedience earned them curses 
from Deuteronomy 28 and, and the promised exile from the, the covenant, the marriage covenant they made with God back at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 when, when they got the Ten Commandments. And what happened? Well, eventually the temple of Solomon was destroyed by the Babylonians. The city of Jerusalem was left in ruins and it fell and the people were scattered over the face of the earth. And once again, they were cut off and put away from God's presence just like their ancestors, Adam and Eve, were put away in the garden so long ago. But even in those dark times, Ezekiel 47 prophesied about a river flowing from the temple of God that brings life to everything that it touches, even the salt water. Everything it touches would come to life just like the first river in Eden. It spoke of trees that were meant for life and for healing. Here's Ezekiel 47, verse 12. It says, And on the banks on both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food. It's looking to a prophecy into the future. And it says, Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water from them for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Where do we see that language again? Leah just read it. It shows up in Revelation 22 at the end. And so we've got it at the beginning of the Bible. We've got it at the center of the Bible. And we've got it at the end of the Bible. I hope that you're amazed by that. If you're just sitting there going, well, what a quinkadink. It's not. There's an amazing connection between Genesis 1 and Revelation 22 because the story will be done. Let's read 22.1 in Revelation then the angel showed me the river of, wa- of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit, its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Sounds familiar. Ezekiel gives us a little bit better picture. And so verse 1 of Revelation 22, we see the river of life from Genesis shows up again and is flowing in the middle of the street of the city of God from the throne of God. Verse 2, the tree of life, back on the scene again with more detail. There are 12 kinds of fruit that we hear now. And for the healing of the nations, and it is constantly giving fruit every month. It doesn't have a winter. It doesn't go barren. It doesn't exhaust its supply. And so this gives us an idea of the promised land that God has not forgotten his people. Back up a few verses to Revelation 21, verse 22. We read, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Why is there no temple? Why was there a tabernacle? There was a garden, and then there was a tabernacle, and then there was a temple. And now we're at the end, and everything's supposed to happen, and and we're supposed to have the fullness and the ultimate, and what we get is there is no temple. Because the whole land is the temple. The Garden of Eden has expanded to fill the whole earth, which is where God's glory is going. It's the plan. How do you know that? Because if you back up a few more verses into verse, into chapter 21, you see the measurements of the city 
right? It's 12,000 stadia. By 12,000 stadia, that's the length of measurement. 12,000, it's like 14, 1,500 miles. For 12,000 stadium, 12,000, 12,000. Why do you keep 12,000? Because 12 is the number of the house. It means it's full. It's, it's a Hebrew thing, right? And so it's, it's, it's on, those kind of measurements are on purpose to show you the completeness, the fullness, that this is what it's supposed to be. It is a cube, just like the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and in the temple, and now it's where we live. Because it's not just a place, it's a people. Just like the Old Testament foreshadowed. In fact, the tabernacle and the Holy Holies and the Holy of Holies and the temple were foreshadowing. They were smaller copies of the ultimate temple. The dwelling place of God is now with his people in the new creation. Verse 4 of Revelation 20, that's 1 and 2. We see the tree of life back on the scene, the river of life back on the scene. Verse 4, his servants will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. This is the purpose for where all of history is pushing. This reuniting, reconciliation, this bringing back of God's people with himself to spill over his glory and to continue to magnify it. He says their identity now will be securely and definitively resting in being a child of God and not in what we have or have not made of ourselves in this life. That's fantastic news. Look at verse 5. Night will be no more. What does night represent? No more separation from God. Night is separation. You can't see. Everything shuts down. You have to stop what you're doing. God is not there. Jesus is the light of the world. We're to be the light of the world. He's represented by light. The opposite of light is darkness. Where God is not is darkness. That's, you know, that's the picture that we get. And since he is our light and will be our light, we will never be separated from him and our source of true life and light again. This is, again, what the Bible is pushing us toward. This new heavens and a new earth that's inhabited by the restored people of God dwelling, seeing his face and ruling and reigning with him forever. I want to center on verse three for just a second. I didn't skip it accidentally. Verse three says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. What curse is that? Curse of the law, the curse from Genesis 3.15. If you remember when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit, they disobeyed and they were, they were cursed and the serpent was cursed and the ground was cursed. Everything was cursed because of sin. It's the curse of sin and death from Genesis. It's the curse that's broken, rendered null, even reversed. The curse that separated humans from God. Humans from humans, humans from creation, it no longer has any power. This is, this is what we celebrate, that the curse will have no more effects on creation like floods and storms and natural disasters, gone. There will be no more effects leading to broken relationships and strained marriages and fractured families. There will be no more effects leading to sickness and disease and weakness in our bodies that ends in death. There will be no more effects leading to debilitating depression and anxiety and insecurity. There will be no more effects leading to treat people different than us as lesser than us. No more bullying or racism or ageism or sexism or war or poverty. No more tears, no more shame, no more fear. This is the curse that has been broken and reversed, bringing people back into contact with the God that created them and loves them, that rules and reigns as their king and as their father. 
The curse is broken. That's why that's a big deal. And what makes this possible in Revelation 22? Why is this an Easter verse? Good question. Where's the gospel, Jamie? What makes this possible is what we're celebrating today. It's not a good story. It's a response to what really happened. That's why it's a story. It's an autobiography, I guess. It's the cross. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's what makes the new creation possible. It's what all of history is working toward. Jesus came to earth for a few things, right? Many things, but but primarily to fulfill the law, to crush the enemy, to vindicate God's name, and to restore his people back to God. He defeated the enemy by enduring shame, suffering, and dying on the cross, by laying his his life down. Nobody took it from him. He laid it down willingly. He was beaten and mocked and took the suffering willingly. It's not because he was weak. It was because he was strong. So that's, you don't miss that. And he was hung on a tree. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's very churchy language, Jamie. That we might be able to be restored to God because God is so holy and we are so not. That we continuously want to run our own lives, to do our own thing, to prove ourselves, to make ourselves seem worthy to others. And we never can make it. And because of Christ and his sacrifice, we no longer have to face the wrath of God because Jesus absorbed it. Did Satan require Jesus' death? Did sin and death require Jesus' death? No. Who did? God. God in his holiness required payment. And Jesus, out of his joy, gave it to pay for our rebellion against God if we believe in him. See, the go- victory from death is a gospel flip. I thought you conquered through killing and taking. The gospel flips that on its head, and it seems upside down to us. How is that? Because see, in the Garden of Eden, what looked like life hanging on the tree, the fruit would look, oh, we've got to have that. If we just have that, we'll be okay. We'll be like God. We'll be better than we are. If we just have that, what looked like life hanging on the tree was death. It's what ushered the curse in. At the cross, what looked like death was actually true life. You see how the gospel reverses things. Jesus crawled up on the tree of death so that we could eat from the tree of life. Verse 1 of Revelation 22. And Jesus, while he was on the cross, cried out for thirst. He cried out, I thirst. You remember they gave him the vinegar and, and the, it was just a terrible thing. He cried out for thirst so that we would be drenched in the river of life. John seven thirty seven. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Revelation 22, verse 2, river of life. You see what he's restoring? Verse by verse. Verse 3, he became a curse for us so that there will be no curse in the city of God. Galatians three thirteen says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It's from Deuteronomy. If you're hung on a tree, it's cursed. And so he became our curse, and in so doing, he reverses our curse into a blessing of eternal life. 
Revelation 22, verse 3. When he was crucified, do you remember the hours, three hours of darkness that spread utterly over the land? He took our darkness so that there would be no more night and we would need no lamp or sun. And now the Lord God will be our light. Verse 5 of Revelation 22. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is the only way to bridge the canyon between Genesis 1 and Revelation 22. In fact, a friend of mine said it this way, Revelation 22 is the resurrection of Genesis 1. All things put back the way they should be, but better, bigger, because it fills the whole earth. You and I were so sinful and so separated from God that Jesus had to die for us. There's no other way. We couldn't do it. We had no hope to return to God. That's one side of the gospel. And the other side is, you know what? He loved us so much, he wanted to. For the joy set before him to vindicate God's name and to restore his people, he willingly gave his life. And so what the good news is, is that you're not just cleared before a judge of charges that have been brought up in you. And there's this business transaction of where God looks at Jesus' sacrifice and goes, debt paid in full, let them let in, I guess. But because you're so loved and because of the sacrifice and the way in which we are loved by the Father, we're not just tolerated by the Father. We're delighted in by the Father as sons and daughters. And that has got to penetrate our hearts because when it does, it changes how we live. It changes when you realize you've been changed in who you are. It changes how you live and how you affect others. And you want to see everybody else exposed to the same guy that you know and not the one that you've been living under the thumb of for however many years. To be welcomed and beloved as sons and daughters of a living and loving father and king of the land, all because of the work of Jesus on the cross. Verse 17 of Revelation 22 sums it up like this. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Yes, come Lord Jesus. If you're thirsty for true life, come to Jesus today. Now, this is your first time here at Summit. We take communion together. It's what we do. There are three tables in the back. I asked the worship team to go on and come up here. There are two tables at the front. Yeah, one on the other side there and one down here. If you're a Christian, you don't have to go to church or be a member here to take communion. You just have to be a Christian. If you're not a Christian, just don't take communion because it doesn't mean what it should. That's the only reason. Think about it. We'll have folks in the back. I see Joey, Sean, Jeremy uh, would love to pray with you. See, Alyssa, ladies, if you want somebody to pray with you, they'd love to pray with you. We do this every week. This is not special for Easter, right? We, we like to pray. And we like to take the Lord. Why do we do the Lord's Supper every week, Jamie? We love it. We love it. And we want you to hear the gospel in the songs. We want you to hear the gospel in the preaching. And we want you to hear the gospel or see the gospel represented at the table. It's a clear picture that uses all five senses on purpose. And we're here to celebrate. We're here to repent. We're here to be silent. We're here to shout to God. We're here to sing some songs that I love. The next three songs, I just want to just sing them with everything I got within me. And so I encourage you to do the same. We come to the table either by yourself or with your family or with your friends or with your missional community group. Or if you're new, just come to the table when you're ready. We don't get in traffic lines. Nobody gets mad about being last. It's, it's great. 
It's the way life should be for the next few minutes. So enjoy that. Relish in your creator, who is now your father, who gave everything to show you his glory and invite you into a relationship. And all you do is say, I receive that. And it's awesome. So let's do that together as family. And we'll just gather around. You can go back to your seats or wherever you can find room. Let's do that together.